Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we come before you. And as we prepare to to look at these verses, to to unfold them, think of the the song that we just sang together. How deep the Father's love. How deep your love for sinful people like us, O God, that you would give your Son to be crucified on the tree for our sins. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, O Lord. These weighty verses that show us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Father, that is beyond comprehension. If that was not written in Your Word, we could not believe that. So I ask for Your help now as we together look at these verses. Oh, may You... Help us to see, help us to understand, and may You help us to receive Your Word with joy. May it accomplish its purposes here this morning. May it humble the proud. May it strengthen the weak. May it bring back the wanderer, and may it save the lost. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week in our time together, we were in verses 1-9 to of chapter 3. And within those verses, Paul was taking the Galatian Christians who he's writing to in his letter, the Galatian Christians who this letter was originally written to, he was taking them back to two things. One, he was taking them back to their initial experience of how they became Christians or how they receive the Spirit of God. And he did that by asking them five rhetorical questions, all of them being aimed at making them think back to how they received the Spirit of God and how they became Christians, which was not by works through the law, but by hearing with faith. Hearing Paul's gospel message that he had preached to them and accepting it, trusting in it by faith. And then the second thing that he took them back to, or the second example that he gave them, was the Old Testament Scriptures. And he gave them the example of Abraham, who he calls the the man of faith in verses 7 to 9, taking them back to what happens there. How did Abraham become righteous before God? How was he counted righteous before God or justified before Him? Was it through circumcision? No. Was it by any works that he had accomplished? No. Paul says that by faith Abraham was justified before God. By faith he was counted righteous before God. So those two things Paul put before the Galatians that testify to them it's not by works, it's by faith. Now, those who are considered of faith, if it's those people who are considered to be blessed along with Abraham, what about those who are considered to be of the law? What happens to those type of people, that group of people? 
If the ones of faith are considered blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, what about those of the law? And that's what Paul's going to begin to unfold to us beginning in verse 10. And the way that he's going to unfold this before us in verses 10 to 14, similar to how he did last week, he's going to take us back to the Old Testament Scriptures and show us how they testify to the Galatians and to us today that it's not by works of the law, but it's by faith. It's by faith that you are justified. And the Old Testament Scriptures show us that. He's going to continue to give us examples from the Old Testament. So let's read these verses together, and then we'll walk through them. And as we read, as you follow along, I'm going to begin in verse 7. Now, if you're a visitor this morning and you would like to follow along in the translation that I'm reading from, which is the ESV, you can pick up the Pew Bible that's in front of you. That's the ESV translation, and you can follow along in that Bible if you'd like. Beginning in verse 7 in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, Know then, so he has just laid out his five rhetorical questions, showing the Galatians their initial experience, how it testifies to them that it's by faith. He brought up the example of Abraham in the second part of verse 6. And in verse 7 he says, Know then, Galatians and Alt's Chapel, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for... The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So the first example that Paul brings before us is in verse 10. And he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, where it says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So this is the first example of the Old Testament that we see here in this passage that testifies to the Galatians and to us that it's not by works of the law, but it's by faith. Now what does Paul mean or who is he referring to whenever he says those who rely on works of the law are under a curse who is who's is he talking about there who are the the ones who are of the law in this verse 
Well, primarily, Paul has in mind when he says those who rely on works of the law are under a curse, he has, given the context of this letter, remember why Paul is writing this letter in the first place, he has people in mind who are taking the Mosaic law and seeking to be justified through it. Thinking that they can take the Mosaic law and say to God, I can stand before you righteous because I can do it. I can accomplish it. That's who he primarily has in mind when he says, who rely on works of the law. Thinking about people like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Isn't that what they were like? They thought they were righteous by their own works. They thought they were righteous because of the law. Their their acts, their obedience to the law. And then he has people in mind like the Judaizers, who he's writing against in his letter to the Galatians. They too thought that they could be counted righteous through the Mosaic law. And then of course he has the Galatians in mind, who are in danger of doing this because the Judaizers were there trying to convince them that justification was not only by faith, but through works of the Mosaic law. So that's who he primarily has in his mind when he says that verse. But, that does not mean that everybody else is excluded from this verse. You think of somebody that says, or hears that verse and may argue and say, okay, well, that's not me. I'm not like the Pharisees, I'm not like the Judaizers, and I'm not like the Galatians. First of all, I don't even know about the Mosaic Law. I don't even know what it's about. I don't even know what it says. So how can I therefore be underneath its curse? Are they excluded? And the answer is no. Nobody is excluded from this. Even though there are people, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who grow up, never even have knowing about the Mosaic Law. Now how can that be? How can God, or God's law, which is God, how can He put somebody on a, under a curse that doesn't know His law? And the answer is, even though there are people who don't know the Mosaic Law, who don't know the Ten Commandments, we all, in a way, have God's law written on our hearts. Which means every single one of us and every single person in the world knows that there is such a thing as right and wrong. And I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2 where Paul makes this very clear. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is again writing to Gentile Christians. He's writing to the Roman Christians. And in the beginning of his letter, namely verses, or not verses, chapters 1 to 3, he's laying out how all people, Jews and Gentiles, stand condemned underneath God's law. And so in chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, Paul says this. He says, He, speaking of God, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 
There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. He says Jew first because they've been given the Mosaic Law. But he does not exclude the Gentile person. The Jew first and also to the Greek, referring meaning Gentiles. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Again, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And he continues in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, think why? Or not why, but how? How could this be? How could someone who has sinned without the law be judged without the law? And he says in verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, those who have not been given the Mosaic law, who do not have the law by nature, that is, on their own, by nature, now where am I at? I'm losing myself here, making comments throughout. For when the Gentiles do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So that is Paul's argument there in Romans chapter 2. It does not matter whether you are a Jew or a Greek, meaning a Gentile, whether you are under the law or not under the law, you will be condemned either way. Because all people everywhere have God's law written upon their hearts. And we can see this even today. I'll give you a couple examples. First, think of children. You don't have to teach a child that there is such a thing as right and wrong. You don't. Think about when a group of children are together playing with one another. Now I'm talking about children who don't understand social law. They don't understand our, our culture. They don't understand civil law, anything like that. They don't understand those things. They don't understand that the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. They have no idea what that means. But yet, if you have a group of them playing together and one of them crawls over to another child seeing what this child has, probably a toy or something like that, crawls over there, wanting it out of jealousy, which also testifies to us being sinners, even as children. But anyways, sees the toy, snatches it from the other child. What do you think that child's going to do? If you're standing there, the parent, that child's probably going to have a face of despair or astonishment looking at you, maybe even pointing and without any words, you have it written all over their face, he just committed offense against me. I was playing with that and he took it from me. He wronged me or she wronged me. And nobody had to teach the child that. They automatically know 
Because being created in the image of God, we have His law embedded on our hearts. We know that there's such a thing as right and wrong. Because when God initially created the world, it was created good, and then sin fractured it. That's all embedded within us. You don't have to teach people that. An atheist who will argue against that all day long and say there's no such thing as moral absolutes, there's no such thing as absolute right or absolute wrong, it's what you make it, they'll argue that until you take their wallet or commit offense against them, try to murder them, or whatever. I mean, there's a, such a thing as a moral absolute then, right? We know this. It's all embedded upon our hearts. So when Paul says, for all who, who, for all who rely on works of law are under a curse, even though he's primarily speaking about those like the Galatians, who would seek to take hold of the Mosaic law and seek righteousness through it before God, it does not exclude everybody Exclude everybody else. We are all under God's law in some shape, form, or fashion. And if you are of the law and you seek righteousness through the law, which is everybody who is not of faith in Christ, or like Abraham, the man of faith that we saw in verses 7 to 9. This is what the law puts upon you. This is the standard that it puts upon you. And that's why Paul quotes from Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 27, verse 26, where it says, For it is written, Remember, Galatians, you want to be of the law? This is what it says to you. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You who would be under the law, the law says abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You want righteousness before the law, Galatians? Fine. You can have it if you are perfect in every way. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, you can obtain righteousness through the law. But we know that no one can do that. So that's the first testimony that Paul gives us from the Old Testament. The law itself requires a standard that we cannot reach, that we cannot attain to, which is perfection. But Paul continues. This is the second example, testimony, that the Old Testament gives to us. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In verse 11, when Paul says, For the righteous shall live by faith, he quotes from the prophet Habakkuk. And he's quoting from chapter 2, verse 4, where God, through the prophet Habakkuk, is saying very plainly that those who would be righteous before Him are not justified by what they can do, but they are justified by faith. God plainly says that through the prophet Habakkuk there in chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith, not by works. And then in verse 12, 
He quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, when he says, the one who does them shall live by them. So he's saying, he's testifying, or he's showing once again that the Old Testament, similar to verses 7 and 9, when we were looking at the example of Abraham, how that example shows that the Old Testament has always been about faith. It's always pointed the people of God to faith. It's doing that here as well. The Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk, the prophet, excuse me, Habakkuk, saying, the just shall live by faith, or the righteous shall live by faith. But the law, as the law itself says in Leviticus 18, chapter 5, or Leviticus 18, chapter 18, verse 5. Man, I'm getting the chapters and the verses mixed up today. But it says there that the law is not of faith. It's of works because it says the one who would live by them, that is eternal life, that's what Paul's referring to here, the one who would seek eternal life, the one who would seek justification through the law, must not have faith in the law, but he must do the law. If you want righteousness through the law, the law does not hold out life by faith. The law holds out life through works. The law does hold out life. It holds out life. It holds out righteousness. But only to those who are perfect. And that's why no one can attain to it. It's not as if something is wrong with the law. The problem is with us. The problem is with our sin. So the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now this may be kind of confusing, especially when you think about the Old Testament era and the people who lived under the law at that point. So if it's always been about faith and the law is not of faith because the one who does them is the one who shall live by them, well, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Simply, they were saved as we are saved today, by faith. You'll be thinking, okay, well, you didn't answer your question. Think about it for a moment. We, on the New Testament side of things, we are saved by our faith in what God has done in the past, right? We look at His promises that He's made in His Word being fulfilled in Christ, which was in the past, in history. Well, the Old Testament people who were under the law, those who were actually justified before God, counted as those of faith, yes, they sought to obey the law, but in seeking to obey the law, living under the law as God's covenant to them, they recognized that their works were not enough, and they said to God, I can't do this. And so my trust, my faith is not in the law and that it can give me righteousness, but my faith is in your promises and that you have said you will somehow do this for me in the coming Messiah that God had promised to them. So they're saved in the same way that we are, by faith. But it's not faith in the law. It's faith in God's promises 
Again, like Abraham in verses 7 to 9, God believed the promises of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's the same way in the Old Testament. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, Galatians, don't be so foolish. It's always been about faith. It's always been about faith. Now again, I know that that's still kind of confusing. So why would God give the law in the first place? Why would He give the law? I don't want to get into that in this passage because we're going to be handling that next week. Paul will start answering, well, why did God give the law in the first place? So you have to wait till next week to, to unfold that. But this is the second testimony that Paul brings up here in this passage. The Old Testament shows that it's always been about faith. It has not been about works. As Habakkuk testifies, God speaking through him, as Leviticus testifies, it's always about faith. Faith in what? I've said the promises of God, but what promises? What particular promise? Paul says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here Paul quotes from... If I can find it here in my notes. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, where he says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In the Old Testament, someone who sinned against God or in a, a great way or had a, a great offense, committed a great offense against God, something like murder or adultery, something like that, when they committed offense against God to that effect, they would be killed and then they would be hung on a tree, which would show, the people could see, visibly see, hey, this person is cursed by God. The offense that they have committed, the sins that they have committed, they are cursed by God, and so they would hang them on a tree so people could visibly see that. Being hung on a tree didn't necessarily curse them. It just showed that they were cursed by God. Now, what does it mean to be cursed by God? What did it look like for God to curse somebody? Essentially, when God put His curse upon someone, He removed all of His goodness from them. God, in all of His goodness and all of His mercy and all of His steadfast love and all of His, His grace, He removed that. From them, And all they were left with was the presence of God, but in His judgment, in His wrath, in His fury. That's what it meant, and that's what it still means to be cursed by God. And that's what we all deserve. Because as we saw a moment ago, the standard is perfection. And we have all transgressed that standard. We have all fallen short of it. And we've been looking at a few passages throughout this letter that show that. Psalm 14, Psalm 143, Romans chapter 3, 
And we just looked at Romans chapter 2. We've all fallen short of that standard. And so we are all worthy of God's curse, to be considered cursed of God. And the way that we are removed out from underneath that curse is not through our works, but through faith in what Christ has done for us. And what He has done for us is, like I was praying a moment ago, incomprehensible. If this was not, if this verse, verse 13, if verse 13 of Galatians chapter 3 was not written in the Bible, I could not believe it. I could not believe it. If somebody was to come to me and they were to tell me that Almighty God who has created all things and His people who had rejected Him, sinned against Him, if they were to tell me that the way God was going to make those people right with Him once again was by the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, Him putting on flesh, being born in the likeness of men, and then taking that curse that I just described to you upon Himself, Him taking that upon Himself, being crucified on a tree, and therefore we would be made righteous again before God? If somebody was to tell me that, and it wasn't written in God's Word, I'd call them a liar. Who comes up with that? You know, there are a lot of people who argue and say that Christianity was just made up by a bunch of different people who came together throughout the years and just kind of pieced all of these books together. They made it up. They made up the plan of redemption. Verses like this prove them wrong. No human being comes up with this. Let's read it, read it again. Verse 13. This is how you are justified before God. This is how we are removed out from underneath the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us. That word redeemed, it means ransomed, saved, bought. Christ bought us. He ransomed us out from underneath the curse of the law. He bought us back. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. When Jesus Christ hung on the tree, the cross, a transaction took place, which is often described as the great exchange. The transaction went like this. On the cross was on display our sin, our debt that we owed because of our sin. The law testifies and says, you need perfection. You don't have it. Therefore, you are in a debt that you can never meet. And then Christ says, I take that debt. And I put it on Myself. In exchange, I give them the righteousness that I have earned with My perfect life. The person, the only person who was and who will ever be worthy in and of himself of all the blessings of God. 
the only person to ever be worthy of all of those blessings that you read in the Old Testament when God gives the law. The only person to ever be worthy of God's blessings. He says, I take their debt and I give them my righteousness in exchange. That's the great exchange. That's the transaction that, the transaction that took place on the cross. And that's why Paul quotes from Deuteronomy there where he says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Because in that moment, you see on display the ultimate curse of God. And that's why New Testament authors, when they write about this, they use the word tree. Some of them anyways, not all of the New Testament authors, but some of them use the word tree. So that when especially the Jewish people who would be familiar with this language read those words, it would make connections in their mind. Hey, he said tree. He's talking about the law. Jesus Christ took that curse upon Himself. He was cursed by God in that way. Which is one of the reasons why He was such a stumbling block to the Jewish community. I mean, who wants to believe in a Messiah, a king, who's considered cursed by God. I want to show you some of those examples. The first one comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter writes, He Himself, speaking of Jesus Christ, he Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. On the tree, He says. Making that connection there that we're looking at here in Galatians chapter 3. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Now turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, the apostles again using this language. Acts chapter 5 beginning in verse 29. Here in Acts chapter 5, the, the apostles have just been warned by the religious authorities that if they continue to preach in the name of Jesus, that they're going to punish them. And this is how the apostles, mainly Peter, responds. Verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our Father raised Jesus, whom you killed, and what does he say next? By hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Peter points his finger in the face of the Jewish authorities who would know this very well, most of them probably having the Old Testament memorized by heart. He points to them and he says, who you hung on a tree. Salvation has come in this way. God has brought His people out from underneath the curse of the law 
through the Lord Jesus Christ becoming a curse for us. You think about the, the crucifixion scene in the, the gospel accounts. For three hours, if I remember correctly, when Jesus Christ hung on the tree, it went dark. What that description of darkness means, I'm not sure how dark it was, but there was a form of darkness that went over the land, showing that God's curse was being poured out on Christ in that moment. And then after that, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing the curse in that moment. And that's why He says, Why have you forsaken me? And all of your goodness, and all of your blessing, and all of your steadfast love. Jesus Christ in that moment was completely forsaken as a man by God, which is what you deserve to be forsaken by God and all of his goodness to have nothing but his wrath, his fury, and his judgment to be poured out on your head for all eternity. Jesus Christ bore hell for you in that moment on the tree. That's why He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew what was going on. He knew what He was going to bear. But in agony, He cries it out. It's an expression so that we can see it or hear it. God had forsaken Him in that moment. He was bearing the penalty of the law the curse of the law being forsaken by God, considered as cursed, rejected, as a murderer, as an adulterer. That's what He was treated like on the cross, as somebody who had committed a murder offense, somebody who had committed adultery, sins of that proportion against God. That's how He was treated in that moment. And He did it all, Paul continuing in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we, Paul says we there, Jewish people and Gentile people alike, all nations, going back to that promise that God made to Abraham long ago, all nations shall be blessed through your offspring, Abraham so that we might receive the promised Spirit. That's the blessing right there. So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham that you receive through Christ, your faith in Him, Him taking your curse for you, is you get God. Which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and God did what? He removed His presence from them. I cannot be in the presence of sin. So He kicked them out of the garden. But through Christ and what He did on the tree, God pours out Himself on His people. He restores what had been broken all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Martin Luther thinking about verses like this, he makes a comment about whenever Satan would, 
would come and not literally come, but you know, consciously, like in your mind and in your spirit, he would come and he would testify against Martin Luther, call him a sinner, and make him feel like he was nothing, that he was just a sinner who could never be made righteous. And Martin Luther would torture himself because of that, trying to obtain righteousness through his own work. So Satan would come, he'd accuse him of his sin, accuse him of the sinner that he was. And Martin Luther, after he'd come to know Christ, he would respond and he would say, you're right, Satan, but Christ Jesus bore my sins in his body on the tree. And he's done that for you. So when the accuser comes before you and he says, you're good for nothing, when he says that you deserve hell, you can say, that's right, I do. I deserve it in full strength. But Christ bore it for me on, in His body on the tree, Satan. So leave me. You'll face it one day. I want because of what Christ has done for me. So let that, let that be an encouragement for you, Christian, as we continue to go through Galatians and as we've been seeing that since justification is not by works, but it's through faith, it's freeing. You know, we're leading up. Paul is doing all this to lead up to that grand moment in chapter 5 where he's going to say, for freedom Christ has set us free. He set you free. May you know that freedom in Christ Jesus and what He has done. May you be a son of Abraham by putting your faith in Christ, which the Old Testament has always pointed forward to. You have two ways. You can be considered as those of the law, or you can be considered as those who are faith. Which one are you? If you are considered as those of the law, then this curse will be poured out on you one day. That horrific curse will be poured out on you. That's what makes hell, hell. God pouring out that curse upon all those who reject Jesus. But, if you are those of faith in Christ and what He's done for you, then there's nothing to worry. You are the sons of Abraham. You are those who have inherited the blessing. God Himself, dwelling in His presence forevermore, experiencing joy for all of eternity. Cling to Christ and receive that blessing. And before I pray and before we dismiss, I want to bring this up. So throughout this letter, I know we've been spending a lot of time in the Old Testament. And for those of you who may not have very much experience in the Old Testament, a whole lot of knowledge about the Old Testament, some of this I know is hard to follow. But I invite you to, to come to me, to come to one of the other elders of our church, George or Ray, or if you have a good friend within the church, go to them, ask them questions. Also, we've talked a lot about what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a part of the blessing of Abraham, to be in Him. Come to one of us. Talk to us about it. If you don't understand it, we would be more than happy to talk to you about these things. 
Again, it doesn't have to be me. You don't have to come talk to the preacher. You can talk to a good friend of yours. It doesn't have to be me. It's one of the reasons why we don't do invitations in this church. They can be very misleading. Somebody thinking that they have to walk the aisle of this church to be saved in Christ. That's not true. God can save you at your house, wherever you're at. It doesn't matter. He can save you wherever. It's not through walking down an aisle. It's not by praying a specific prayer. It's by crying out saying, God, I am unworthy and the only way I will be saved is through Your Son. So I invite you to, to come, to talk to us, to have conversations with us if you feel like you just don't know what any of this means. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You and oh, how we thank You for Your Word. This wonderful promise that is just incomprehensible. Again, if we did not have it written down in Your Word, You telling us these things, we would not be able to believe it. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, being fully God, fully man, being born in the likeness of men through the Virgin Mary, putting on flesh, and then being crucified on the cross, becoming a curse for us. Oh Lord, may we know that salvation. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.